So go ahead and open up your Bibles, beloved, to uh, Isaiah chapter 37. And as you're turning there, this, this really is, Isaiah 37, in a lot of ways, is the climax and the resolution to the entire Assyrian affair that has really dominated the first half of, um, well, not a little over half, of the, of the book of Isaiah. This is kind of the climax. We'll have a couple more chapters, but then before we get into, um, the, you know, the, the second really half of Isaiah, which begins in chapter 40. And I want us to kind of remember everything that's gone, on to, gone into this. Okay. Let's remember where we are in the nation of Judah, right? So you remember Judah and, and the northern kingdoms had split, right? And though there had been some, you know, some attempts, it feels like, at obedience in, in Judah's past, by the time we get to the kingship of Ahaz, who is the father of Hezekiah, Judah has been on a, on a spiritual downward spiral, right? They have become wholly idolatrous. They have become um, just unreceptive to the word of God. They have spurned the commandments of God continually. They have given themselves to wholesale idolatry. They are worshiping in the high places. They are worshiping the Canaanite um, fertility goddess. They are, they are giving themselves wholeheartedly to all sorts of just, just spiritual adultery, right? And by the time that Ahaz becomes king, he is really the epitome of the people. He, he is the exact same kind of guy. Like if you would have just picked a man at random from Judah... Um, in his spiritual condition and made him king, you would have had Ahaz. He was, he was no different from his people. He was a politician. Um, he was keenly um, invested in trying to expand his, his kingdom, expand the kingdom of Judah, make himself an important person. Um, and you'll remember that he was in sharp disagreement. He was, you know, he was, he was in sharp disagreement with the Syrians and the northern kingdom that were trying to kind of annex, if you will, Judah. And so he decided to make allies with Assyria, right? Big mistake. And you remember that it was in that time that God raised up Isaiah, that he saved him, commissioned him to be his prophet, right? And you remember it was Isaiah's purpose to go and to confront Ahaz. And to call Ahaz back to obedience to God, to call him to repentance, to call him to obedience to God, to call him to make spiritual reform in the nation of Judah, and, and, and above all, not to put his trust in his own wisdom or in his own uh, or, or in military power, and especially do not put your trust in the Assyrians. Because if you do, here's what's going to happen. If you trust in the Assyrians, they are going to lay waste to Judah. They're going to wreck it. They're going to wreck the nation. And you'll remember that he, Ahaz, had no ear to hear the word of God. He completely rejected everything that Isaiah had to say and and basically mocked him. Mocked Isaiah and mocked his, his place as being the prophet of the living God, right? And so Ahaz continued, you know, in this in his kingship until he was succeeded by his son, Hezekiah, right? Who's king now, as we were looking in in chapter 37. And you remember Hezekiah was 
somewhat of a spiritual reformer, right? He had all the high places torn down. He, he made sure that there was no more of this, you know, just however you want to do it, worship out in the countryside and stuff. Worship was going to be back in the temple. That's where it belonged. We were going to follow the law. Like, we're going to return ourselves to obedience to the living God. And on a spiritual level, at least, you know, he was very deliberate in, in introducing these reforms. But he wasn't so quick politically and militarily to bring, you know, those aspects of his reign into alignment with the living God, right? And so you'll remember, he decided that he would break with his father's um, um, alliance with Assyria, and he was no longer going to pay them tribute. And so he just stopped sending them the annual tribute that Assyria demanded of Judah, right? And, and he was going to rebel, and, and he was going to make Judah a, a free nation, and, uh, and that all sounded great, except the one problem with, it, with Hezekiah is that he didn't actually consult with God before he did anything. Instead, what he did was, is he made an alliance with Egypt, right? And uh, made an alliance with some of the lesser vassal states that were in the area. And they were all going to stand firm against Assyria when inevitably Syria would come, to, would come to claim what was their own, right? And so there they were, they're ready to, you know, defend themselves against Assyria and Sennacherib and the Assyrian army come in and they wreck all the little vassal states that are outside of Judah and then they lay waste to the countryside of Judah and they march right up to the edge of, of Jerusalem. He sends a, a, a military aid, government official with an army, they march right up to the outskirts of Jerusalem, right? And basically say, we're going to destroy you. you. You have this moment, just this brief moment to consider this. We will allow you to live and we'll even deport you somewhere kind of nice, but only if you, if you surrender right now. And so that's where we are. Okay. The Rabshakeh, you remember the, the, the guy that represented Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. The, the Rabshakeh had come and he had spoken to the Judean officials. And he'd spoken to the men on the walls, right? And they had stayed silent. They had said nothing. They were committed to obedience to, to Hezekiah, but more importantly to, to the Lord, right? And so the Rabshakeh tells them all these things. Eliakim and Shebna and Joah, the, the, the Judean um, officials, they return to speak to Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, and tell him everything that's taken place. And that brings us to Isaiah 37. So let's look at it. Let's read it together and then we'll pray and we'll break it down. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, the message from the Rabshakeh, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth. And he went into the house of the Lord and he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, 
Say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now, the king heard concerning Terhaka, the king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, the king of Iva. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord. You have said, with my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest timbers, its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height in its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it's grown. I know you're sitting down, and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me, 
and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be a sign for you to Hezekiah. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap, and plant vineyards and eat the fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech, and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Wow. All right, let's pray. Lord, this is your word. And we bow our hearts and our minds and, Father, our will and our understanding before it. I pray, Lord God, that you would teach us and train us according to your holiness, according to your steadfast love, and according to your everlasting and unchanging truth. God, draw near to us and be our teacher. Have guard over my mouth, over my mind, Lord, that I might speak those things that are in accordance with your will, that which is pleasing to you and that will be edifying to your people. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here we are. We're finally at the sort of climax to this, right? When we left the scene, left the scene last week, Rabshakeh has delivered his message. And the whole point of him coming and, you know, sort of, you know, primping and preening in front of the, the walls of, of, of Jerusalem was really to, to rattle the, the faith of the elders and rattle the faith of the men, the soldiers that were there on that wall, to shake their faith, to seduce them, you know, into confessing that, that you know, the, that Sennacherib had overwhelming power and might and, and to make them break faith with Hezekiah and to break faith with the Almighty God, right? But as I mentioned earlier, they remained completely silent. They said nothing at all, just as Hezekiah had commanded them to do, right? And so what we see is that, look, man, the people are, are sold out. They have bought in. They're going to follow Hezekiah. Whatever, wherever Hezekiah leads, they're going to follow in this. In an earthly sense, in a very real way, their lives are in Hezekiah's hands. And so the question is, how's he going to respond? What's he going to do in the face of this threat? How is he going to respond? And, you know, and, and, and will that response be such that it leads to the deliverance of the people of, of Jerusalem? Right? What's going to take place? So... Eliakim, Shebna, Joah, they've returned to Hezekiah with the robes rent. They've delivered the Rabshakeh's message. And that's where we pick things up again tonight. And we look first at his plea that he makes to the prophet Isaiah. Pick it up again with me in verse 1. He said, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priest covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, 
This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. And when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So what do we see here? The first thing I want us to notice, beloved, is the way in which Hezekiah responds to this situation. Because it's, it's the key, really, to the whole rest of this chapter. He responds by rending his clothes, by putting on sackcloth, right? And by going to the house of the Lord. What does that tell us? What that tells us, or what that's supposed to make us see, is that he's a man, first of all, who understands the severity of this situation, okay? Like, he really gets how very serious, how dire these circumstances are. And then by putting on this, the sackcloth and, and by running his clothes and putting off sackcloth and going to the house of the Lord, it shows us that he is a man who is repentant. He's deeply grieved over his sin and over the sins of Judah that have brought them to such a, a horrendous place. And he knows, he knows that the only hope that he has is the sovereign deliverance of the Lord. And that's why he goes to the house of the Lord. That's why he goes to the place of worship. That's why he goes where God is honored. He knows that's the only hope he has. That's it. And this is no token display on his part. The idea here is that he humbles himself publicly and, and, and wears his sackcloth publicly. And he demonstrates that as king, he was ultimately responsible for the disaster that had befallen the nation. He should have been a better leader. Here's Judah at a precipice, you know, from which only God can rescue them. Now, we don't have any record of what takes place when he goes to the house of the Lord. Isaiah doesn't tell us. 2 Kings 18 and 19 do not tell us. But, but what we can assume or what we can presume is that he goes there to, first of all, offer a sacrifice for sin, right? And then to bring the nation's situation before God in prayer to plead for his intervention, right? So he goes on his own to go and to pray and to seek God's face. But he doesn't just do that. He's not finished only with that. He also sends messengers to Isaiah. Eliakim, Shebna, and the senior priest. I want you to think about that for a second. That's an interesting group right there. Eliakim and Shebna, who were part of the, you know, the interior council of Hezekiah, but specifically the senior priests. Do you remember what we read earlier about the senior priests and their response to the preaching of Isaiah? Do you remember what they said? They made fun of it. They mocked it. They laughed at it. They despised it, right? They called it, you know, child's teaching, remember? Now here are these guys, hat in hand, tail between their legs. They've got to go to Isaiah as spokesmen, you know, for Hezekiah. Moreover, notice this, that Hezekiah stands in direct contrast to Ahaz, right? Where Ahaz, Isaiah goes out to Ahaz and delivers them a message and Ahaz ignores it. Hezekiah says, look, I'm sending to Isaiah for a message. I want to hear a word from the Lord. He is willing to put himself at the feet of the prophet, right? 
And look at the words that he says specifically. These are the words that these men are to say. These are the direct words that come from Hezekiah. He says, This day is a day of distress, a day of rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there's no, str- and, and there's no strength to bring them forth. What's Hezekiah saying here? Well, first of all, he's saying, look, you know, we're in a place where this is a day of distress. This is anguish and affliction. Okay, that's what that word means. But also, it's a day of rebuke. It's a day of punishment and chastisement. And the idea is, it's, it's what we deserve. Like, we're in this position because we deserve it. We're to blame for this. Particularly, I'm, in, I'm to blame for this as the king. And it's also a dis- day of disgrace, a day of shame for him and for his people that it's gotten to this point, right? And then he uses this proverbial saying, a proverbial saying to compare their situation to that of a woman about to give birth, but who lacks the strength for delivery, right? Like the picture is this woman has labored and labored and labored, but she still can't bring forth the baby, right? It's a, picturing of, a picture of what? A life-threatening crisis, right? You don't let that go on forever, right? In modern medicine, when the woman's been laboring forever and there is no advancement, you take her for a C-section and you do it stat, right? To preserve her life and the life of the baby. And the idea here is they're in a life-threatening crisis. Ruin and death are staring them in the face. And only divine action can deliver them, right? But notice what, how Hezekiah phrases this. He asked his messenger, say to Isaiah, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. This plea is presented, first of all, not in a doubtful sense, but more with an affirmation of hope. And yet, there is very much of a sense of trepidation and dis-ease in the words that Hezekiah instructs them to say. Why do I say that? It's because he speaks of God as what? The Lord your God. Not the Lord our God. Not even the Lord my God. But the Lord your God. You ever been in a situation where you've sinned, you feel so grievously that God can't possibly hear even your prayer of repentance? And so you ask somebody to pray for you because surely they're going to have an inside line to God that you don't have. Right? You ever been there? This is kind of what's going on here. He's, he's implying not only that Isaiah as the Lord's prophet, right, as his mouthpiece stands in a, you know, a closer relationship with God than he does, but Also that Isaiah, by his obedience and by his faithfulness, has honored and maintained his relationship to God in a way that the king and his advisors have not done, right? Hezekiah believes that that God has heard the words of the Rabshakeh, that he's heard his mocking, and that he will not let their defiance and ridicule go unpunished. He's the living God. He's not a helpless idol of wood and stone. But he also believes that Yahweh Yahweh will hear Isaiah's prayer, specifically. And so 
He pleads for him to pray that God will preserve the remnant. Now, when he talks about remnant here, he's not talking about remnant in the spiritual sense like we're used to, right? Where the remnant within Judah that's truly believing, you know, and then the rest of Judah that's just in the visible people of God. That's, that's not, when he, when he says remnant here, he's literally speaking of the comparatively few of the nation of Israel, of the nation of Judah that are left in Jerusalem. Everybody else is either dead and cap, or captured and on their way to Assyria. They're in the, the, you know, the, the slave line. That's it. Already city after city's fallen to Sennacherib. There's long lines of deportees that are snaking their way into, into bitter exile. And all that's left is Jerusalem, man. That's it. So intervene, intercede, pray to God that, that he'll deliver these, this last bit, right? And then notice how Isaiah responds, because it's really cool. Ironically, his response is immediate. He doesn't even need to pray. There's no mention at all that Isaiah says, okay, I got you, and then begins to pray, and then God speaks to him. He doesn't even pray. He doesn't have to pray, right? Now, that shouldn't strike you as like being kind of, you know, I don't know, arrogant or, 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 or presumptuous. That's not it at all. Isaiah doesn't need to pray because he knows what God has said. He already knows what God has said, and he knows that God promises that he fulfills everything that he promises. And what the Lord said he meant. In other words, he doesn't have to like go try to figure it out again, right? He's already heard from the word or from the Lord. He already knows what the what God has said, and he's going to set his feet upon that, and he's not going to be moved. And that's a lesson to us. Listen to me. When you have rightly received the word of God, when you've rightly received the truth of God, you don't need to go proving it again. You don't need to go trying to establish it again. You don't need to do that because it's already proven. You stand on it. You don't move from it. You be faithful to that revelation of the Lord. That's what Isaiah is doing here. He doesn't have to try to figure it out. He doesn't have to scramble. He just stands on what he already knows, what God has spoken. That's why we don't need to go looking for a new gospel, a new and improved gospel. Gospel has already been spoken. It's already been accomplished, right? We stand on it. So Isaiah responds. He says, in essence, look, whatever other, whatever other words have been spoken by the king of Assyria, thus says the true king, thus says the, 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 the Lord, don't be frightened by the words of these men. In Hebrew, it's the idea of little men. Do not be, do not be frightened by the words of these little men, by their words of reviling and scorn. Instead, be of good courage. Because this is what I, this is what I, the Lord, will do. Behold, I will put a spirit in him. As we're going to see, it's going to be a spirit of unease and fear. So that he shall hear a rumor. That rumor is probably the one that regards the the king of Egypt that is coming up to battle. Or it could even be a rumor about a threat to his throne because he had many of them. And he's going to return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So confidently, right? Isaiah receives these messengers. He brings the truth to bear in this situation. I think that's what people today call speaking truth to power. I'm not sure, right? But he brings the truth of God's almighty and unbreakable word, right? He says, look, stand on that. Stand on this. And that leads us to the Rabshakeh's interaction with Sennacherib and the second envoy that goes to, to, to Hezekiah. Look at it. Look at verses 8 through 13. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna. For he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now, 
The king heard concerning Terhaka, the king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the king of Assyria has done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? And then he gives the list of them, right? So what happens? Well, when the Rabshakeh left from Hezekiah, he, he, he goes to, to return to, to, to tell the, you know, what he heard to Sennacherib. He doesn't have anything to report, right? He's spoken all those words and they said nothing. So he doesn't have anything to really tell Sennacherib. But while he's on his way back, he finds out that he needs to go not to Lachish where he'd left him, but he needs to go to Libna. And the reason he's got to go to Libna is because Sennacherib had heard a rumor. He'd heard a rumor that the king of Egypt, this is the Cushion dynasty, the king of, 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 of Egypt had, had, was on the move to try to strengthen Judah at Jerusalem. And the most direct route that he would have used would have been through the outpost city of Libna, right? And so Sennacherib had taken his army there to block the Egyptian in advance, right? Likely it was only a rumor because the Egyptian army had been thrashed much earlier at, at Telkena. They had been, you know, just wrecked there. And so it's probably, it's probably just a rumor, right? But here's what it had done. It had unnerved Sennacherib. It had made him think like, okay, this is just going to continue to be a, 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 just a, 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 a mire in a bog. Like, we're going to get stuck down in this, in this battle here. We're gonna, this is going to be like an Afghanistan kind of situation. So here's what we need to do. We just need to go ahead and press to get Jerusalem to surrender right now. Like, I don't want to stay in this area any longer than I have to. So, you know, he, he sends... Again, a quick, you know, envoy with a verbal and a written message to Hezekiah to demand Jerusalem surrender. That's what's going on. That's what's, that's what's transpiring here, right? It's really just more the same that we've seen before, right? With one significant difference that we can't miss, right? As Sennacherib is detailing all the towns and gods that he's, that he's crushed and exalting himself and promising his own victory over Yahweh and over his people, Notice that he makes the fatal mistake of directly attacking the character of God, right? When Rabshakeh came, he said, you know, do not be deceived by Hezekiah, right? Here, he says to Hezekiah, do not be deceived by the Lord and think that he can deliver you. He calls Yahweh a deceiver, a liar. This word means beguiler, right? That's the word that we use of Satan. The beguiler. A trickster. In his mouth is the age-old strategy of Satan in the garden throughout the ages, right? You can't really trust God. Did God really say? He attacks the integrity of Yahweh. And for that, he will dearly pay. And so faced with these words, right? We see Hezekiah's response of faith and submission to Yahweh. Finally, faith and submission to God, to the Lord. We read verses 14 through 20. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, 
God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wooden stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. You would seem that Hezekiah just simply read the letter, nodded thank you, and then dismissed the messengers without a single word so that he could hurry and hustle to go up to the house of the Lord. And what we see here, beloved, is Hezekiah's finest hour. This is Hezekiah at his best. The greatest thing that Hezekiah ever did as a king was to prostrate himself before the Lord in humility and to earnestly pray. It's the most, it's the most responsible and, and the greatest thing that, could he, that he could ever have done as the king. He responds in faith and submission to the Lord. I love the picture here. The picture is he goes up into the house of the Lord. He's got the letter and he just spreads it out in front of God. Well, here it is. Lord, here's what they're saying. Here's what, they are, here's what they're calling you. Here's what they are saying they're going to do to us. I, I have nothing. I got no power over this. It's as if he is relinquishing everything into the hands of the Lord for him to deal with. You ever been there? You ever been there? I can remember being there in prayer. I can remember specifically saying, Lord, this is yours. I have no strength. I have no power. I have no wisdom. I have nothing to deal with this. And that's exactly what Hezekiah does. He isn't, you know, self exalting because he's a king. He's not self-impressed. He doesn't count on his own wisdom that was folly before. He doesn't count on his own strength anymore, his own power. Instead, in meekness, he just goes and he seeks the Lord in prayer. He lays it out there. If you don't do something, Lord, if you don't rescue us, if you don't save us, we are all doomed. All of us. Rightly so. Rightly so. But if you don't intervene... It's over for us. It's over for us. Can I tell you, beloved, I, I think, and I, the, more, the longer I've been a pastor, one of the most difficult lessons for Christians to learn is that believing prayer rooted in the Word of God is the only truly practical power in dealing with the harsh realities of life in this world. We learn that lesson very hard. I think it's why God sometimes kicks our knees in so we have to get on our knees. Do you know what I mean? Only prayer lays hold of the omnipotent and omnicompetent God who alone can do what we cannot do. And Hezekiah's prayer here, it is a masterpiece. Not that we're looking at it to grade it, but might it be a lesson to us in prayer? It's one that is rooted in the majesty and in the glory of God. Look at this. He begins, first of all, by extolling the Lord in this prayer for all His greatness. He confesses God, first of all, as Lord of hosts or God Almighty or the God who commands the armies of heaven, the, the warrior God. That's particularly applicable and important in this situation, isn't it? Well, yeah, right? 
He magnifies him as the God of Israel. And the idea is he's the God of covenant faithfulness to his people. God never breaks covenant with his people. We might break covenant with him. He doesn't break covenant with us. He's the God of Israel. And all that's left of Israel right now, the original nation of Israel, is a single city. What is going to happen? Right? He extols his holiness as the God who is enthroned above the cherubim, the God who is both high and lifted up, but the God who also dwells above the Ark of the Covenant, the God who is with his people in their midst. Right? He exalts him as the only great God and king over the kingdoms of the earth, as the creator God who made heaven and earth. Hezekiah's prayer is inescapably God-centered, isn't it? Focused on his uniqueness and his grandeur and his majesty. He exalts God. He prays that he'll see and hear everything that Sennacherib has written and said. Now, obviously, God sees everything. He hears everything. But the prayer of Hezekiah is, would you do something, Lord? Would you act and put him in his place? That's the idea. In fact, there is an earnest desire now in Hezekiah for God to vindicate himself, right? They've, they've brought enough reproach. Hezekiah and the people of Judah and Sennacherib, they've brought enough reproach on God. Now, God, vindicate yourself and show them who you really are. That's the idea, right? He, he, he asks him to, 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 to see and hear all of this and let Sennacherib know who he's dealing with. He's not dealing with, with gods of wood and stone. He's dealing with the living God, the living God. He's not dealing with no gods. He's not, you know, he doesn't ignore the reality, right? It's not like um, Pollyanna prayer where he's not really, you know, like sometimes we pray on Sunday mornings like, Lord, let us just forget all the distractions of the day and everything we've got going on in our lives. You know, I would say to you that might not be a really great prayer because honestly, Worship ought to touch us in the midst of all of the stuff that's going on in our lives. Don't forget about it. Bring it before the living God, right? And they're doing that here. He's doing that. Hezekiah is doing that here. He knows the truth. It is true. Sennacherib has destroyed multiplied nations and lands. He has reduced their gods to ashes because they're mere idols. But you know what? He hasn't faced the Lord of hosts yet. And I want you to take note of the way that Hezekiah ends his prayer. This is pretty great. First of all, I want you to notice that he prays, So now, O Lord, our God. Right? It's a subtle change, but it's a big one. It shows a renewed faith, a renewed confidence, right? And he prays that the Lord will deliver Jerusalem from destruction. But notice why. Not for their sake. Right? Not for their sake, but to demonstrate and show without question that He alone is God. He prays, the root of this prayer is God, glorify yourself. Glorify yourself as the only true God. His prayer is bold. It is direct. It is rooted in the glory of God. Beloved, we could learn much from Hezekiah about power in prayer and how we approach the living God, couldn't we? Prayer begins and ends with God. The overflowing concern is that God be glorified. He prays and he receives an answer. Look at this. 
beginning in verse 21, the first part of 22. It says, Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. Right? Now, it seems a little weird, right? I mean, Hezekiah is the one that's praying, and then it bounces apparently off of the throne of the Lord in heaven, and it bounces back to Isaiah, right? So that Isaiah can be the mouthpiece from which the word of God is spoken, right? So it, it, that, that's kind of a, a cool situation there, right? And so it's like, hey, you've got mail. So here it is. So Isaiah is going to bring it to him now, right? So, but notice what he says. The Lord says, because you have prayed to me. Now you see what he's saying? Your prayer has been effectual. Your prayer has been heard. You have offered prayer. You have because you've asked. It's in response to Hezekiah's prayer that God speaks. Now, I don't want us to miss this because it's part of Scripture's, you know, strong teaching about prayer. Because Hezekiah has prayed, God will now step in and act. And the implication is if he hadn't prayed, God wouldn't have stepped in and acted. What do we do with that? I mean, we believe in the sovereignty of God, right? We believe that He decrees all things from the beginning to the end. So what do we do with that, right? How prayer works, beloved, is a mystery. But there is no conflict between God's absolute sovereignty and the power of prayer. And here's why. Because quite simply, that is the way that God has chosen to work through the prayers of His people. That's the way He's chosen to work. And it's the way that God brings His eternal counsels to pass. He performs His foreordained purposes in answer to the prayers of His people. Oh, why did God do that? Why did God plan it that way? I don't know. I'm not God. That is beyond our understanding. We will never comprehend that. I will just go with what R.C. Sproul was famous for saying. You know, somebody asked him, you know, when we pray, does that change God's mind? And R.C. Sproul said, you know what? When we pray, it does not change God's mind, but prayer changes things. And the person was like, that's it? And he said, that's it. That was the end of it. But I don't want us to miss that this, this takes place because of the divine sovereignty of the Lord and because of the prayer of a faithful man. Right? The effective, faithful prayer of a righteous man availeth much, right? Notice that the response, the first words are directed at Sennacherib. The Lord says, starting in verse, the end of verse 22, she despises you, she scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you. The daughter of Jerusalem. Now, we don't have any you know, record that this was actually delivered to Sennacherib. But this is to encourage Hezekiah. And notice what God calls Jerusalem here. He calls Jerusalem the virgin daughter. Right? i got to be delicate here. But basically the idea is that she has never been touched by anybody. Okay? She hasn't been... She hasn't been touched by a marauding army or, or succumbed to an enemy attack, okay? And so the Lord pictures Jerusalem as, as this chaste virgin that, that is laughing and mocking and, and making fun of Sennacherib, shaking her head in contemptuous laughter at his pitiful attempt to destroy her, right? To take her into his possession, Right? Some of you guys are probably familiar with that when you're growing up and you ask like the really great looking girl in your class out and she like just laughed at you and shook her head. You know, I never experienced that, but I'm sure some of you guys did. Right. That's the kind of picture here. Right. Then 
Then the Lord continues saying, who are you mocked and reviled? Like, the whole thing is like, man, you better ask yourself some questions here. Who are you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you've mocked the Lord. You've said, with my many chariots, I've gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypress, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. He calls Sennacherib to account, right? He's mocked and reviled the Lord. Not Judah, not Hezekiah, God. He's arrogantly raised his voice and lifted his eyes, right? He's exalted himself in the face of the Lord and he's bragged of his prowess and of his conquest, the way that he's conquered many lands and imposed his will, how he's dug wells and drunk water while cutting off the waters of his enemies. And he, he, Acting like a god, basically. That's what he's doing. He's exalting himself as a god. And Alec Motyer says about this, he says that Sennacherib here is a preview of the man of sin, of the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. 2 Thessalonians 2.4. And then he goes on to say, in particular, he has challenged first the holiness of the Lord, that is, his distinctiveness as God. Secondly, he is his particular commitment to, to be Israel's God. And thirdly, his actual sovereignty as Lord. Alongside this, he has registered a personal claim to earthly power and to dominion over the earth in its heights, in its remote recesses, its resources, and its peoples. He's put himself forward as God. And Yahweh's answer to his hubris is abrupt and it's direct. I love this. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago. I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into a heap of ruins, while their inhabitants, short of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it's grown. In essence, the Lord's response here is, who do you think you are? Like really, who do you think you are? I remember when I was a kid, when my dad would say that to me, that was a hint to shut up. I mean, really, who do you think you are? I mean, the whole sweep of eternity, the whole sweep of history takes place in accordance with, with Yahweh's decree. This egocentric king is confronted with the fact that all the victories you won, I gave them into your hands. All the land you've conquered, I too gave them into your hands. You have a very high opinion of yourself, Sennacherib, but all you are all Sennacherib was, was an instrument in God's hands to use however he pleased. And then when he was finished, to discard him on the trash heap of history. Sennacherib was just an instrument. In this case, to turn God's people back to him. And then the most striking thing. Sennacherib thinks he knows who Yahweh is, but here's what the Lord says. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because you've raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the, on the way by which you came. I want you to think how unnerving, if Sennacherib did hear this, how unnerving this would be. 
You think you know who I am? You compare me to all these other gods? Basically, God is saying, I watch everything you do. I know every, God knows everything about him. Everything he does. Everything he thinks. All of his words. Every breath he takes. His rage and his arrogance. Every single thing about him. There is not a thing. There was never a time when Sennacherib was not under the scrutiny of the Lord. That's terrifying, isn't it? Guess what? It's true of you and me too. For Sennacherib, it's going to mean divine judgment. God's going to break him as a man breaks a wild horse or a, or a bull. A hook through the nose or a bit in the mouth. He would treat Sennacherib actually. Here's why he uses this, this picture of the, of the hook and the bit. It's because that is exactly the manner in which Sennacherib would treat his prisoners. The Assyrians would treat their prisoners as they marched them into exile. They would put literal hooks in their noses. And they would put cutting bits in their mouth to keep them from talking. He's like, as you've done to the people that you've mastered, so I will do to you. Then he turns to Hezekiah to give him encouragement. And he says, and this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that, and in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take Take root downward and bear fruit upward, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He makes a promise of the destruction of Sennacherib, and then he turns to Hezekiah and says, I'm going to return prosperity to you guys once again. I'm going to give you back. I know the lands have been trampled around, right, is the idea. Everything has been trampled down. But God is going to give them prosperity again. They're going to eat from, from what they can glean this year. And then somehow, by God's miraculous provision, they're going to eat again from those gleanings for a second year. And then they're going to sow and they're going to reap and they're going to have vineyards. And there's actually going to return a time of prosperity to Jerusalem, right? There's going to be a remnant. There's going to be a band of survivors, a community that will actually not only survive but flourish. And God promises it. He promises it. The Lord will always preserve a people for himself and his zeal, his wholehearted commitment and energy will see to it. As the sovereign, you know, Lord Almighty, Yahweh of hosts, he guarantees it. This continuing existence of a community of faith won't rest on them and their, you know, vibrancy and their strength. It's going to rest on the zeal of the Lord. And for those who trust in the Lord, this great blessing, you know, Will, they will receive great blessing through their discipline that they've received. And there will be prosperity because of suffering. And there will be faith refined through testing, right? And then he gives the last word concerning Sennacherib. His final assessment. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he now shall not come into this city declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. The Lord pledges here the safety of Jerusalem, right? And there's not going to be an invasion. There's not going to be a bombardment of arrows, you know, from, from, a siege, from siege mounds. There's not going to be any advance of warriors behind shields. God's going to defend the city. He's going to defend the city. Everything that they're afraid of is not going to happen, Right? They, they, I'm sure they had run through their minds all the worst case scenarios, right? Just like we sometimes do, don't we? We run all, we go to the very worst case scenario, right? 
Like, I haven't seen somebody in church for the last week. I wonder if they've left. Or maybe they're just sick. Maybe they went out of town. Or maybe something else, right? No, no, it's got to be something else. What did, I do to def- what did I do to offend them, right? We go to the worst case scenario. He's like, the worst case scenario is not even going to happen. It's not even, get- it's going to go no further, basically. And he's going he's gonna to defend the city for two reasons. And I want you to see this. First of all, for his sake, right? For his glory as the shield and the defender of his people. But then also for the sake of his servant, David. What's he getting at there? David is long dead, right? So what's he talking about here when he says he's going to do it for the sake of David? Well, he's going to do it for the sake of the promise that he made to David, that that he would never lack for an offspring that would sit upon the throne, right? But the David that we know ultimately that he's speaking about is the greater David, right? The greater servant who is who? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's going to do this for the sake of the son of David, the Messiah and the true king of kings. Ultimately for Jesus because... Listen, God preserves Jerusalem and he preserves the remnant of the line of Judah because it's through them that the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, the one who will offer the sacrifice that redeems, you know, all his people. That's the line through which he would be born according to the flesh. He is faithful to Judah in this instant, even when Judah had been long unfaithful, because ultimately he is faithful to his purpose to provide a savior for his chosen people throughout all ages. That's it. And then from, the end, from that, we just turn to, you know... All we need to look at now is to draw this chapter to its close is a brief, almost matter-of-fact report that God did exactly what He said He was going to do, right? We look at Sennacherib's bitter end. Take a look at it. It says, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, you know, we read that so matter-of-factly, but can you imagine that? Can you imagine getting up in the morning and everybody's dead? Like, what in the world, right? And when people, uh, behold, they're all dead. And Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped, after that they escaped, after they escaped in the land of Ararat, Esarhad and his son reigned in his place. I I think to myself, I've tried to envision this, and I'm sure you have too, like, Try to envision the way in which the angel of the Lord slew 185,000, right? And there are no details given here, right? So how did it happen, right? Was it, was it a plague? You know, was it like the death angel, you know, in the, in the Passover? Was it, you know, did they just stop breathing? Did they have cardiac arrest? You know, was there massive bloody carnage, right? Like, what was it? We don't know. We're not told. You know what I think? I think what you picture in your mind says a lot about you, right? I'll be, I'll be honest. When I picture this, I don't picture the pedestrian, like, oh, they just stopped breathing thing. I do picture the massive bloody carnage. I picture somebody getting up and going, what happened here, right? I picture the sword of the, of the angel, like, doing some work, right? Anyways, we don't know, and we're not told. It remains a mystery what we know is this, is that one night Sennacherib's army is decimated in such a way that it cannot be ascribed to anything but the power of God. But a single divine act of immense proportions that is performed with consummate ease. 
it settles the issue, issue, doesn't it? Very quickly, settles the issue and stands as the crowning proof that the Lord is master of history and that the way of faith, the way of faith is the way that's rewarded. Right? Sennacherib departs. He goes home to Nineveh. I think this is very interesting. I love this. Actually, the way that he dies is almost fitting. He's in the house of Nishrach, his god. Right? He's worshiping a god that, ironically enough, is made of wood and stone. <laughs> right? And his sons sneak in during his religious act and kill him with a sword. The man who lived by the sword, what? Dies by the sword. It's remarkable. And all Hezekiah had to do, all Hezekiah had to do, like Moses of old, was pray, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. So what do we see here? What's the takeaway? Well, here they are in rapid fire. First of all, this is a story of godly contrition and repentance for sin. It's a story of godly contrition and repentance for sin. It's a story of returning to and relying on the word of the Lord that had been long neglected. It's a story of faith and of God-sent courage in the face of a humanly insurmountable crisis. It's the story of seeking the Lord in prayer as He is for who He is. It's a story of worshiping Him for His incomparable majesty, of pleading for Him to move for the sake of His glory. It's a story of God's decree of vengeance against his enemy and the enemy of his people. It's a story of divine declaration and of divine intervention and of the fulfillment of God's word. And it is an instructive story of how we should face the crisis of living in this fallen world and remaining faithful to God. That's the heart of this. It's not just a history lesson. It's a spiritual lesson. I would usually open this up for comment, but it's 5 till 8, so I'm not going to do it. So we're going to pray, and, um, and then we're going to pray, take some time to pray. Uh, so, John Schaefer, would you pray for us, please? Father God, you are mighty. You are all-powerful. There's no one who can ascend to your heights. There's no one who can descend to your depths. You are infinite in all of your ways. God, you have provided us with salvation. You have given us clear instruction on how we are to conduct our lives and how we are to, to live and how we are to perceive you. God, so I pray that we would be given the strength. You would give us the strength to abide by what your word is commanded. Lord, that we would view you in light of what Scripture says about you, and that's it. God, that we wouldn't look to anything else for salvation. We wouldn't look to anything else for comfort, anything else for peace. God, you are the source of all of that. And Lord, I pray that our lives would be glorifying to you, 
God, that our lives, that would, that would shine as lights, Lord, that we would be salt in this world, Lord, that we would cause others to, to see us, to thirst for Christ and the righteousness that He freely bestows upon us. Lord, You are good, and You are great above all things. So I thank You for this time, Lord, I thank You for revealing Yourself to us in this way in Scripture. Lord, for giving us a clear understanding that You will not be mocked. Lord, that You are judge. You are the author of life, and You sure can take it. Lord, so I pray that we would just be in step with the Spirit, that we'd be in step with You. Lord, I pray all these things in uh, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.